Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Episode 26 of the Bowery Boys. It's the Flatiron Building. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. Tom is away this week. Today, I'm going to wax poetic about probably the most poetic building in New York City, the Flatiron Building. Popular star of postcards and romantic photography and uh, movies, as you've probably seen. The Flatiron is a slender, triangular-shaped office building bordered by 22nd Street on the south and 23rd Street on the north and creating its angled look from the intersections of Fifth Avenue and Broadway The Flatiron actually has some very impressive company in the neighborhood. It has Madison Square Park catty corner to it, and it's only a block away from the MetLife Tower and the Gold Tip New York Life Insurance Company building. It's all very pretty around there, any way you slice it. So coming up, I'll tell you a little bit of the story of the Flatiron building, and I'll dispel five myths about it that you may have thought were true this whole time. Stay tuned. So the Flatiron Building was constructed actually in 1902. The first myth you may know about this is the Flatiron Building was given its name because of its resemblance to the shape of an iron, as in like ironing clothes. This is close but not exactly right because the block itself was called the Flatiron Block well before the building actually came into existence. And before 1902, it was primarily occupied by sort of nondescript two- and three-story buildings of which have been lost to the mists of time. As we mentioned a few weeks ago in our Macy's podcast, this area from 14th to 23rd Street was popularly called Ladies Mile and was primarily a high-traffic shopping district full of big department stores. The Chicago-based George A. Fuller Company, one of the biggest construction firms in the world at that time, had decided that the area might be right for a new direction and planned to develop some office space at this peculiar triangular block. On top of using the building as their New York headquarters, they would also actually rent out floors to various prospective other companies, which wasn't actually like a widely considered practice at the time. Myth two about the Flatiron Building holds that the building wasn't even supposed to be called the Flatiron Building, but rather that its official name was the Fuller Building. It might have started out that way. However, during construction, it wasn't very least nicknamed the Flatiron Building, based on blueprints and other documents at the time that were found that were drafted between Fuller and their brilliant Chicago-based architect who was working on it, Daniel Burnham. I should mention, by the way, that the story of the Flatiron Building is basically a Chicago story to the extent that you could even consider the Flatiron Building was a gift from Chicago to New York. Let's just consider that. Anyway, so our story... 
star architect of the show here, Daniel Burnham, is not even an architect that you usually associate with New York. He is, however, one of the most influential men ever in the city of Chicago. He's sort of a kinder, gentler, proto-Robert Moses, if you, if you want. In particular, fans of the book The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson should definitely recognize this name. And no, he's not clearly not the serial killer with the crematorium in the basement. Burnham and his partner, John Root, were late 19th century's best-known architects in Chicago, but also in the entire world. They built an impressive number of structures for the city, including the Masonic Temple Building in 1892, which for a couple of years was actually the world's tallest building in Chicago. They also revolutionized the very nature of making tall buildings in the first place, Burnham's former architectural firm was the first to use metal framing, meaning that the support of holding a building up went into the still skeleton of it as opposed to the actual external walls. They took advantage of these innovations, and soon their buildings were towering all over Chicago. These early style of skyscrapers are often referred to as the Chicago school or the commercial style of architecture. The Chicago school would clearly influence the New York skyscraper boom then later on in the 20th century. It should come as no surprise then that when it was announced that the World's Fair was coming to Chicago, that Burnham and Root would be in charge of planning and the construction. It was actually called the World's Columbian Exposition in celebration of the 400th anniversary of Columbus's supposed, supposed discovery of America. They would employ the superstars of architecture, the biggest names of architecture and design, including a lot of men associated with New York architecture at the time. Richard Morris Hunt, who designed the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty, you may remember him. Charles McKim of McKim, Mead & White, who built New York's Penn Station, and they built Columbia University campus up in Morningside Heights. And the whole thing would be landscaped by Frederick Law Olmsted, who gave, of course, New York its Central Park and its Prospect Park. So all of those men helped create the Chicago Exposition Fairgrounds. Unfortunately, Root died during the planning phase of the exposition, and Burnham had to basically overcome a host of different obstacles that would be associated with, you know, I mean, creating like a temporary city within a city. But when it was complete in 1893, the white city, as it would be called, because it would all be painted white, would come to define all that was current about American architecture at that particular time. You'd have classic features and symmetrical lines and Greek and Roman revivalism with Italian influences. In a way, it almost looks like an, an old artist rendering of what ancient Rome looked like in certain extent. Of course, with like electric lights and a big Ferris wheel. Burnham, so obviously then, was an icon in Chicago. In a way, I mean, it might have even seemed almost ordinary to him to be contracted to design a single building here in New York City. But even with his reputation, there was this cachet of, you know, having to to get a building in big New York City, as opposed to, you know, to be a little more snobbish, the out there Chicago, as it would have been considered back then. More important, like the notion of an external non-New York company actually coming in and building something in New York was almost unheard of at the time, if you can believe that. Obviously, this is not an absurd notion these days in the city. So anyway... Burnham then began design and construction of the Flatiron slash Fuller building in 1902. And I believe we're on to myth number three, that the Flatiron building was, at the time it was built, the tallest building in the world. 
at 20 stories and 280 feet tall, it was definitely among the tallest of the world. But that title was actually currently being held down downtown near City Hall with a building called the Park Row Building, which was built at 29 floors and 391 feet in 1899. So no chance of beating that record. Perhaps because, though, of the still structure that Burnham used, or maybe just because it was Burnham who made it, the Flatiron actually enjoys a little bit of this honorary title of first skyscraper, but it isn't really. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So it may be not the tallest in the city, but it was easiest the tallest building in that area, which, as I said earlier, was all department stores, you know, no more than a few feet high. But sort of sad to admit is that while the surface elements of the flat iron are certainly lovely, they really weren't revolutionary. Burnham made it by layering a triangular steel skeleton with terracotta and limestone materials in like a fairly calm amount of like Italian Renaissance flourishes. I mean, you've seen the, the Beaux-Arts building. This is not quite to that over-the-top extreme. You know, it is technically just a three-sided building at its narrowest up at the north side. It's only six feet across. So the effect at certain angles was to appear like one gigantic solid classical column. Terracotta by the way, yes, terracotta, which he used to make it. Uh, I mean, could you imagine like any architect walking into a planning meeting today, rolling out a blueprint and saying, we're going to make this entire thing out of terracotta. We're going to make this out of ceramic. So glazed terracotta, you know, basically went out of fashion after the 1930s, you know, almost never to be used again in major construction. But its off color gives the Flatiron Building a little of its charm. It also embroiders the side of the building with these female-faced medallion shapes that, you know, might be charmingly tacky on another building, but here it works to great effect. New Yorkers, being New Yorkers, immediately began calling the building Burnham's Folly, partially because, you know, it was just so conspicuous, it was odd-shaped, it was a little old-fashioned. Plus, people didn't expect that it would remain standing thanks to the crosswinds that this building created by having, you know, a thin building at, at a cross-section. This The wind was actually a really serious problem. The winds were known to break out windows of the buildings across the street from the Flatiron. 
In fact, the steel frame of the flat iron itself was constructed so that if it did blow over, if it ever did fall down, it would fall down in one piece. Sadly, mere months after its completion, the New York Times in February of 1903 reported that, I quote, John McTaggart, a 14-year-old messenger boy, after three attempts, succeeded in rounding the 23rd Street corner of the Flatiron. An auxiliary blast blew him out into Fifth Avenue, where an automobile ran over him. He died from the effects of internal injuries. So these were the kinds of winds that the Flatiron building was creating. However, not all the wind effects were necessarily unpleasant to New Yorkers, which leads me to myth number four. The 23 skidoo, that was a slang phrase which became popular in the jazz age. Supposedly, it referred to the idea that so many women were pausing on 23rd Street to look up at the Flatiron Building that their skirts would swirl up and men would stop and would look at what was underneath. Cops would then come by and give them the old 23 skidoo or scram before I arrest you. I mean, although this is a really cute story and is and is often told is like an urban legend as much as anything. Just a little research into this uncovers the fact that the term was in use well before 1902. But you can tell your friends at parties if you want. The wind wasn't so much of an issue as the buildings around it became much taller than the Flatiron Building. Uh, an observatory that was on the top of the Flatiron was eventually closed because, well, everything was soon looking down on it and not much to observe. However, as time passed, the Flatiron became an epitome of the nostalgic older style and its unique shape helped secure its popularity with later critics and of course like the plain old regular New Yorker and Hollywood for that matter I and mean, the Flatiron is frequently used as one of the city's more iconic images more recently of course it starred in um, all three of the Spider-Man movies the offices of the Daily Bugle the current tenant of the Flatiron building by the way who's to, who is there right now it is the book publisher St. Martin's Press now myth number five relates actually to our dear friend Daniel Burnham. I haven't forgotten him. Myth five is, you know, is that the Flatiron building is the only Burnham designed building in New York City. You know, you have one of these legendary architects and it's the only building that kind of trips off people's tongue, but you can actually find two other significant Burnham buildings still here in New York. It's just that they they're not exactly featured in the most flattering of lights like the Flatiron building. Although they do happen to all be on Broadway, like the Flatiron, so you can just take Broadway up and down if you want to do your little miniature tour. The first of them, uh, the former Gimbel's department store, was built several years after the Flatiron in the years 1908 to 1912. Gimbel's was one of Macy's chief competitors, and as Macy's had just moved up to 34th Street a few years previously, it's no surprise that some of his rivals would crawl on up there with him. Gimbel's is on thir- was on 33rd and 6th Avenue, so just a block away from Macy's. Sadly, most of its facade has been so modernized now. So with the exception of like a little bit of flourish on the upper floors, you can't really tell it's much of anything. And now it's the home of the Manhattan Mall. Burnham designed another department store further downtown uh, that would be the Wanamaker's department store. He actually had a good relationship with that company and designed many other stores in many other cities. This building was on 77th and Broadway at 8th Street and 9th Street. At the time it was built in the late 20s, it, believe it or not, surpassed the up town Macy's as the largest department store in the world. Macy's, of course, would have the last laugh years later when Wanamaker's was absorbed into the Macy's family of stores. You can get more information on that in our Macy's podcast if you haven't heard it. Now, if you're trying to like rummage through your head to remember like what 
what is in that building now? Like what what is there? Can you picture in your head? Let me in the suspense for you. It's a Kmart. Back in Chicago, meanwhile, Daniel Burnham would be extremely pivotal in shaping the future of that city. In 1909, he penned an essay called The Plan of Chicago, where he completely revises the map of the city, essentially uh, beautifying the shoreline of Lake Michigan with parks and playgrounds and public spaces. His proposals would be embraced by Chicago officials. The plan is actually more popularly known as the Burnham Plan. He would go on to make many more buildings throughout the United States, notably the Union Station buildings in Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Columbus, Ohio, and El Paso. So there's representations of his work all over the United States. Now, Burnham died in 1912, and he's buried, actually, in a very peculiar place at Chicago's Graceland Cemetery on what's called Daniel Burnham's Burial Island. A tiny, circular little island that's connected with a bridge that you can just cross to go pay your respects to him. Now, maybe you're thinking, those wacky Chicago people, who would take a body and put it on an island by itself. Well, New Yorkers, you don't have any room to speak. For if you stand at the north end of the Flatiron Building, facing up Fifth Avenue, okay? You're there? The first thing you see is a tall, slender obelisk in the middle of a very busy traffic island. That would be called the Worth Monument, named for William Jenkins Worth, a general in the Mexican-American War. And as you probably guessed, there's a man buried underneath that in the middle of a traffic island in front of the Flatiron Building. Anyway, if you want to know the whys and hows of this particular thing, we've actually got it all up for you on the website. That is the BoweryBoysPodcast.com. In addition, we'll have this show up to listen to there and some photos to accompany it. Here's my big pledge drive moment of the show. So go out and tell your friends to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and you know through our other podcast directories. We should, I think we should be up on most of them, all the big ones. We've got some great ideas and some great changes coming up in 2008 that I, we think that you'll love. So I want to thank you for tuning in. Tom will be back here next week and we have a very fun topic picked out. I can't wait. So have a great New York week whether you live here or not. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.